Good morning, and once again, a special welcome to all of our mothers on this Mother's Day, and a special blessing to all those who have lost their mothers or who are far from them today. The peace of Christ be with you. This morning we are celebrating the Ascension of Christ. Ascension Day is coming this Thursday, uh, but we're marking it this Sunday. The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 47. This psalm is one of a handful of psalms that can be classified as royal, royal psalms or enthronement psalms that celebrate God's reign over time and space. So as we prepare now to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pause for a word of prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit. That as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. Through Jesus Christ, our reigning and ascended Lord, we pray. Amen. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is awesome, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. For God is king over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And the New Testament lesson today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. The author of the Gospel of Luke is the same author as the book of Acts, and he makes reference to the first book that he wrote in this text, which is a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Listen once again for the Word of God. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, 
and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Children are famous for asking the question, Are we there yet? Throughout a long road trip or a long flight or even a short little walk to the park, at some point, impatience kicks in and the child is ready to arrive, right? Never mind the journey, never mind the process. Let's get there already. That's where we really want to be. Adults ask this question too, but in different sorts of ways. We may have a better sense than a child of the remaining duration of a journey. But we also lose our patience with circumstances that don't change, vicious cycles that don't result in progress, burdens that never seem to get lighter. And all of us, if our eyes are on a certain prize, express frustration and doubts when setbacks make our goals seem more distant than we might have thought. The disciples in our text today asked Jesus a question akin to a child's, Are we there yet? Since they'd first met, the disciples have been through a lot with Jesus. Believing he would be the one to redeem Israel, they expected him to overthrow Rome and usher in the Messianic Age. But then he was crucified, and those hopes were dashed. Three days later, however, he was raised from the dead, and with him their hopes were restored. And now he's been with them for 40 days, teaching about the kingdom of God. And so they ask him the question they've had since he first called them to follow him. Lord, is this the time when you're going to redeem the kingdom of Israel? In other words, Lord, it has been forever. You've lived and taught and died and rose, and now you've been living and teaching again. Has the time finally come? Are you finally going to set things right are we finally going to see the ultimate redemption of all things? Will you finally act decisively instead of delegating your ministry to us? Lord, are we there yet? But like a parent telling a child to relax and look out the window, Jesus replies just as he does elsewhere when people want to know the day or hour. It's not for you to know the times and periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Gah! Jesus says essentially, God only knows. But he does give them some reassurance. He says that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And he tells them that when the Spirit comes, they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And with that... Right in the middle of their conversation, he's taken up into heaven and vanishes into a cloud. And the disciples are left standing there, bewildered and stunned, staring at the sky, their head in the clouds. 
Our adult ways of asking are we there yet have a way of leaving us staring at the clouds as well. You see, we work and work toward a goal that's important to us, only to face setbacks that leave us staring at the heavens, clamoring for divine intervention. We battle an addiction for years, gradually making progress and tallying up the days, only to undo all of that effort in a moment of weakness. We pursue justice and peace in our society, only to see that there were 35 mass shootings in the United States in January alone, and 43 in February, and 48 in March, and 52 in April, 181 total this calendar year alone. We do what we can to alleviate global poverty, whether we support a single child or run an international nonprofit only to have to reckon with the fact that millions of people have slipped back into poverty on account of the pandemic. You see, no matter how hard we work at the right things, sometimes we backslide, sometimes progress unravels, and eventually we realize there's still a long way to go, and we stop in exasperation and discouragement and stare at the heavens, wondering when on earth the restoration we have been longing for will be fully and permanently realized. Thankfully, the disciples are not left alone on Mount Olivet to stare at the sky forever. Two angels in white robes appear in order to redirect their bewilderment. Just like two angels in white appear at the empty tomb on Easter morning to redirect the women's bewilderment. At the site of the resurrection, the angels ask the women a question that is simultaneously an exhortation. They ask them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Also here at the site of the ascension, the angels ask the men a question that is also simultaneously an exhortation. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? Each of these questions prompts those whose bafflement has led to paralysis to spring back into action. The women at the tomb are reassured that Jesus has gone ahead of them into Galilee, and they will see him there. So for now, they should go and tell the disciples. And the men on the mountain are reassured that Jesus will later return in the same way that he has gone up. And for now, they must go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem. When those of us who follow this same Jesus find ourselves baffled and bewildered, sometimes we need a good exhortation to snap us back into action. When we reach the end of our rope, when we've done all we can and it's still not enough, we need to be reminded of what our charge actually is. Both the women at the tomb and the men on the mountain are given the exact same task. Go and be my witnesses. And we're given this same task, too. You see, sometimes we get stuck speculating about times and dates. Sometimes we get stuck staring at the sky, dreaming of the day when the right will finally prevail over the wrong. Sometimes we get stuck wondering when, if ever, justice and peace will be realized. But when we do, Jesus redirects our attention toward the immediate task of being his witnesses. We share the disciples' longing for ultimate restoration. A longing which, by the way, Jesus does not say is misguided. 
Such restoration is surely coming. It's just not given to us to know the day or hour. What is given to us in the meantime is to be witnesses of our risen and ascended Lord. Which begs the question, of course, of what exactly it means to be a witness. How can those of us who are not eyewitnesses of the resurrection and ascension bear witness to the living, reigning Christ? The Swiss theologian Karl Barthes kept a painting of John the Baptist above his office desk. And this image, which is printed on the front of your bulletins, is a reprint of a portion of Matthias Grunewald's 16th century Eisenheim altarpiece. The whole altarpiece depicts Christ on the cross, but the focus of the painting is actually on John the Baptist, painted next to Christ and pointing toward him. As you can see, John's index finger is long and bright, focusing the viewer's attention on John's action of pointing to another. After all, it was John the Baptist who said, He must increase, and I must decrease. So for Karl Barth, the image captured perfectly the task of theology, which is always to point more precisely and faithfully to Jesus Christ. I think for us, too, the same image captures perfectly the task of bearing witness. To be a witness is to point to Jesus in all that we do. Now, we get into trouble when we try to go beyond this role of witness and step into realms that we are ill-equipped to inhabit. For instance, to be a witness is not to have all the answers. After all, when a witness is on the stand, they must only tell what they have seen and heard, right? If they're asked a question that they can't answer, they can't make things up. They can't speculate. I don't know is an acceptable answer. And in the same way, a Christian with all the answers is usually not a great witness to Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus himself didn't give all the answers to all the questions he was asked. In this very text, the disciples ask him a question, when's the final restoration? And he answers, you don't get to know that. Clearly, an encyclopedia is not what Jesus had in mind when he was thinking about disciples. It's counterintuitive but it's not Christians who say, I don't know, that push people away from faith in Christ. No, it's Christians who have God and God's will all tied up in neat little packages who tend to push people away. It's Christians who can fit any situation into a pre-assembled box who tend to push people away. People whose lives have demanded or elicited a deep respect for mystery will in fact benefit from knowing that Christian faith is faith-seeking understanding, as St. Anselm put it in the 11th century. Understanding that is never complete and comprehensive, but always prompting further seeking. Consider, for instance, a woman facing a cancer diagnosis. A Christian with all the answers will tell her that there must be a reason that this has happened, perhaps some sin in her life that has brought this upon her. Proper repentance will surely bring about a complete cure. Such a person, of course, is not helpful and probably harmful, not to mention wrong. Instead, consider a witness to Jesus Christ who does not know all the answers. When the same woman reflects rhetorically, 
How could this happen to me? The response of a witness is, I don't know. But I do know that Christ who died and rose for us is with you, and I am with you, and you're never alone. To be a witness is not to have an answer for everything that happens in this crazy and confusing world. It's to point to Jesus and what we do know to be true about him and his love for us and his presence with us. What's more, to be a witness to Jesus Christ is not to achieve in the world what only God can accomplish. Witnesses cannot themselves bring about the final restoration No matter how irritated we might be at how long we've been waiting for Jesus to come back since the ascension. We can't force the day or hour because we're frustrated with the lack of progress being made. In a word, that's how burnout happens. A good witness goes about the tasks of discipleship. It follows the process of discipleship while leaving the results open to the one seated on the throne. All we can do is be faithful and persevere in the work God has called us to do, pointing all the while to our risen and ascended Lord. A therapist does not begin her work with a client knowing the day or hour that client will finally break off their abusive relationship or finally be released from the triggers of their trauma. All the therapist can do is put to good use the skills they have gained over the years, the experience that comes with age, and wait for God to do what the therapist cannot. An activist does not begin the work of dismantling racism in her community with a three-month timeline in which to get the job done. The more people are involved, the harder it is to control the outcome. Progress can be made, conversations can be had, legislation can be passed, but then a sudden hate crime can make it all seem in vain. All the activists can do is invest in one courageous conversation at a time, one initiative at a time, and trust that the Christ who draws all people to himself as he is lifted up from the earth will finally bring an end to enmity between peoples. The activists must persevere in the task at hand. You see, to be a witness is to point to Jesus. It's not to have all the answers And it's not to become the Savior ourselves. To be a witness is to faithfully chip away at the work Christ has called us to do. Sometimes we end up staring at the sky. Sometimes the work of the gospel doesn't bring immediate results. Sometimes what we thought we knew suddenly no longer holds water. Sometimes we feel powerless or burned out. We've underestimated the enormity of the task. Or we need to remember what it actually means to be a witness. To be a witness is to point to Jesus. And friends, to be Christ's disciple is to live with the tension of continuing the work of the gospel without knowing when it will all be realized in its fullness. There's no way around that tension. Sometimes we don't see immediate results. Sometimes the task feels too great, and sometimes the progress we think we made seems to unravel. But take heart. Though Christ has ascended, he does not have us go it alone. The promised Holy Spirit equips us to bear witness to Christ and anoints us with power to be faithful in anything and everything until Christ returns just as he ascended. 
So let us continue to point to Christ, trusting that no matter what happens, the Lamb of God has ascended to the throne, and the Alpha and the Omega will see us through. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.